you could not get tenure uh, in a biology department. There's very, very few exceptions. episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing the chief economist at Microsoft, Michael Schwartz. Dr. Schwartz is a micro theorist who works on problems in an applied field of economics called market design. In our talk, we discussed his career as a former professor at Harvard University, as well as his transition into industry, where he's worked for such giants as Yahoo, Google, and now Microsoft, as well as the scientific, scientific discoveries he made within industry, working on practical problems around the designing of auctions. He shared with me his opinions about the enduring importance of economic theory, even in an age of data. I am your host, Scott Cunningham, and this is Mixtape Podcast. All right. So uh, it's my pleasure uh, to get to talk with Michael Schwartz, uh, uh, chief economist at Microsoft, um, who's gracious enough to let me uh, talk to him a little bit about his life and his time in, uh, in industry. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for letting me talk to you on the podcast. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. So, so uh, before we get into your time in industry, I wanted to talk a little bit about your uh, your 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 pre-industry uh, time. There's this interesting thing I found on the internet that you have your your PhD and your master's, but no undergraduate degree. And I was curious about uh, the. That's probably a small set of people. Can you tell me about that? Uh, sure. Uh, it's a long story, uh, or it's a very short story. I um, uh, I did a couple of years of undergrad in um, in Moscow. I, I was born in Moscow, uh, and I lived in Moscow till I was twenty years old. Uh, and uh, uh, maybe now more than ever, I could say there's never a bad time to leave Russia. Uh, so <laughs> 1990s surely seemed like a very good year to leave Russia. Uh, although obviously 2022 could very much compete with it. Um, so, um, you know, with a couple of years of undergrad behind my belt, I uh, uh, thought, well, I want to get out of this place. Uh, and um, at that time, there were no uh, uh, Russian students, uh, no students from the Soviet Union uh, in the uh, U.S. Uh, I mean, there were some uh, uh, there were some Russian immigrants, but like a foreign student wasn't an existing concept for uh, Soviet people. Uh, uh, so, uh, so I started kind of exploring how to get uh, how to get out of Russia and uh, go to uh, to the US. Uh, and uh, uh, I didn't get the best information because, well, at that time, it's not like there were other cohorts of foreign students coming uh, from the Soviet Union to the US. Um, so uh, I got an impression that the way it works is, is that there were um, good programs in the US and uh, those were called the graduate school. Uh, they were good and they were free. And they were for good students. And then there were not so good uh, programs in the US. They were called undergraduate uh, 
programs, they were those were for bad students who have to pay a lot of money to be in school. Uh, so my 19 year old self uh, uh, created this mental picture and uh, it worked. <laughs> uh, I applied to graduate school in physics uh, without having uh, an uh, undergraduate degree and and I went. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so your life could have been totally different if you tried to get into it, gone and done a done the undergrad. It worked out perfect. What was your? How did you get interested in economics? How did you go from physics into economics? Uh, well, uh, I think um, uh, you know physics and economics. Uh, I think are philosophically very similar. I think in many ways economics tries to be uh, like physics in. Mm -hmm. um, in the methodological sense, right? So, for example, if you go to any physics department, you will see that there are theoretical physicists and there are applied and experimental physicists. Mm -hmm. You go to any economics department, you will see that there are economic theorists and there are applied and uh, experimental economists. Uh, if you go to a biology department, you will not find biological theorists. Mm. You could not get tenure uh, in a biology department. There's very, very few exceptions for being a theoretical biologist. Same goes for, say, chemistry, right? So in this respect, um, economics and physics are kind of philosophically similar. And I was interested in theoretical physics and I, I was fascinated by uh, economic theory. Mm. And uh, I think that that distinction uh, is actually somewhat, um, uh, it's not intrinsic to a discipline. Right. Uh, I, I could imagine another institutional structure where every biology department has several theoretical biologists mm -hmm. who teach biological theory uh, and then has experimental biology to teach experiment. I could imagine that world. It's easy to imagine that world. That world is possible. Uh, it just doesn't exist. Right. I could also imagine a world where there are no economic theorists, yeah. uh, where uh, it's not a category. Yeah. Uh, yeah. where there are kind of applied economists and they do some theory, they do, uh, and they do some applied work and it's a mix, uh, just like we see in biology, right? There are certainly biologists who are thinking about, very deeply about biological systems, but none of them are theoretical biologists. In fact, in biology, you couldn't publish a theory paper. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you can have an absolutely brilliant theory in biology. You will submit it to Nature. It would be rejected because there is no experiment to confirm it. You can mm. submit it to second and third and fourth year journal, and it would be rejected every time. Mm. So that's kind of the norm of no norms of the discipline, in, mm. uh, and it's kind of somewhat endogenous. Yeah, yeah, and it's not exogenous. Some of it is just historical coincidence. Right. Well, I don't want to get off track, but now that you say that, you know, part of the trend of of uh, academic economics over the last hundred years has been the 
somewhat of the the shrinking of of theory with the growth of empiricism. Does that what what, what it's your what what's your opinion about how it's how the market or how the discipline has changed over the last 20, 30 years? Uh, well, I, I think that um, so I'm not an, uh, I, I'm not an economic historian yeah. uh, and I'm not a historian of economic thought. Um, uh, so I think um, uh, that I'm not sure if a, uh, uh, assertion that there is kind of a monotonically decreasing role of theory in economics over the over the last hundred years, I'm actually not sure if uh, this is empirically true. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, maybe it is, uh, maybe it is not, I'm, I'm, I'm not certain. Uh, my sort of impression based on uh, very little that I know about history of economic thought is that there was a time during the 20th century where actually kind of the uh, mind share and market share of economic theory was expanding. Mm -hmm. And uh, in more recent decades, uh, it declined. Uh, but I'm not sure if this is like a very steady uh, trend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How like, do you for example, when you look at like, uh, economics of uh, economic science of 1920s and 1930s. Uh, at that time, you well, you don't see economic theory as we know it today. Yeah. Uh, uh, right. Uh, so at that time, economic theory, I think, in in many ways, uh, uh, kind of some of it sounds almost like philosophy right, right? and then kind of uh with arrival of uh, uh rigorous mathematical modeling in economics kind of there's just this revolution that that happens and uh, and as a result uh that the mind share of economic theory increases and then at some point uh, uh it starts to to decrease yeah yeah it starts to decrease for reasons i uh, uh, I think I vaguely understand. I think those are good reasons. On, on one hand, uh, we got those wonderful toys that we all have on our desks right now. Yeah. We, we have extraordinarily powerful computers, so we can, uh, the, the, the cost of applied work uh, declines dramatically. Uh, and, um, uh, and at the same time, uh, kind of the the level of understanding and depth of understanding of theory that every economic graduate student has today uh, is uh, uh, certainly not what it was half a century ago, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, e economists are much, much more expert in theory than they were half a century ago. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so to some extent, you can say there's less economic theory. To some extent, you can say, well, actually, nowadays all of us are economic theorists. Like every empirical I.O. economist who does structural uh, I.O. in some ways knows economic theory better than most economic theorists knew economic theory half a century ago. Maybe I've it's never thought of it. it isn't. I've never thought of it that way. Hmm. The stock. And maybe that's also a reason. Uh, maybe it's also a reason why 
graduate training in economics is getting longer. Yeah. And I mean, it used to be the case that pretty much every um, MIT uh, PhD was done in four years. Yeah. Four years and you're out, off you go. Right. And uh, uh, in other top programs like Stanford and Harvard uh, and Yale, uh, the norm was four years, but five was sort of okay. Right. Uh, so today, four is very rare. You don't yeah. see people finishing a PhD in four years. Yeah. And uh, five is considered short, six is common, seven is not that uncommon. So mm -hmm. the duration of an economic PhD program like increased by basically 50%. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, part of it is that, well, we, uh, I think we do learn a lot more. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. That's, uh... I mean, maybe I'm over optimistic. Ah, right? that's, maybe, that's a... uh, maybe we just waste more time. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's possible too. Uh, but I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm a sometimes optimist. So I hope yeah. that uh, we actually have a better trained generation of economists. Today. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, so this 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 issue of theory and um, and empiricism and uh, computation, I I I feel like this is going to be a part of the thread that I'm wanting to have with you about economists and tech. But I don't also want to lead it. So I guess I just wanted to kind of talk a little bit about a couple of things. Um, but but I'll do it in the context of your life and what you've seen. So. The, but the backdrop is you're you're an assistant professor at Harvard. What year is this? So this is early 2000, late 90s, early 2000s? Uh, I started in 1999. Uh, uh, and you were in the economics department? I was Harvard? in the economics department. At the economics department in Harvard. And okay. so, and you end up leaving and you go, tell me about the, so I, I'd love to hear the story of the decision for, you know, uh, the decision to actually exit academia and go into this early part of the growing of the of the tech market. And I just was kind of curious about where did that walk me through what information started to emerge where you where this actually looked like you could see yourself in this career that probably I'm assuming you didn't had not seen for yourself before. You know, I. Uh... I certainly haven't seen that for myself uh, because it, it didn't exist. Uh, but at the same time, I was actually in some uh, uh, ways exposed to it early on. Uh, so even as I was kind of applying to PhD programs, I uh, uh, when I was choosing which program to go, uh, again, I, I was pretty ignorant about how economic profession works, uh, but I chose to go uh, to Stanford Business School, uh, rather than uh, like, you know, my other options were uh, uh, top economics departments. And I thought, well, you know, I, I want to go to business school because I, I want to maximize an option value. I'm a believer in maximizing option value early on mm -hmm. in the uh, career. Uh, and I thought, well, with a business school, I can probably do everything I can uh, uh, do after econ department, but I also could have a career in business. Yeah. Uh, uh, so that drove my choice. 
Um, and, and then as I was a, a business school student, I was actually exposed to tech very, very early on. Uh, I, uh, my first exposure to tech uh, was in um, uh, mid nineties. Uh, so in mid nineties, I um, uh, received uh, IBM Cooperative Fellowship uh, and I did a summer internship at uh, 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 IBM Research Labs at Alma, mm -hmm. uh, which was, by the way, uh, a great research lab. Uh, one of the uh, researchers there was a physics Nobel Prize winner. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, that was the place where hard drive uh, was invented once upon a time. Uh, so um, uh, it was a spectacular building on top of a hill built back in the days when IBM was uh, perhaps the most beloved American company. Mm -hmm. um, so, well, by mid-90s, IBM was uh, no longer uh, on top of the hill uh, uh, as the company, but the lab was still on top of the hill. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so... Um, so it was an exciting place and it was exciting to be uh, an economist there. I was, uh, uh, I believe, the first <laughs> and only economist uh, who ever interned there. I, I don't know if I was the only one, but I, I'm uh, quite certain I was the first one. Um, so it, it was a really interesting experience. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so, I, so I already had kind of this familiarity with um, uh, with corporate research uh, and respect towards corporate research. Mm, mm, yeah, sure. And and then and then I as I was uh, um, uh, so after after that experience, I you know continue working on my uh, dissertation and uh, uh, but uh, uh, kind of a few years later after that internship. Uh, and still before I finished my PhD, uh, HP Labs uh, recruited me uh, um, uh, for their research lab. Mm. Uh, so, so I was kind of uh, uh, intrigued by the space. Mm. Um, so for me, uh, I think that uh, uh, the reason that I kind of ended up gravitating towards tech is that although I was a kind of pure theorist, uh, uh, I... Uh, always felt that I want theory to be relevant. And yeah. it was very important uh, for me. And what it meant, uh, what it meant for me was that whenever I had an opportunity to talk to practitioners, I used that opportunity. I seeked out that opportunity. So when I would write a paper, any paper, I would just try to go out and interview uh, and uh, a bunch of practitioners. Can you give and me an example? Are, uh, can you sure. give me an example of like a paper that came out of something like that, or how you went about it? Oh, sure. I, I can give you many examples. Uh, so, for example, I have a, a paper on um, standard adoption, and it's a theoretical paper about global games. It's very technical, has complicated theorems. It's joint work with Michael Ostrovsky, who. Mm -hmm. um, uh, who, who was uh, a student at uh, Harvard at the time. Uh, so, so even though I kind of knew that my paper is about global games, I was like, hey, I, I want to understand better how people who actually set standards think about it. 
So I went out and I interviewed uh, people. By interview, I simply mean I, you know, would email uh, people and say, hey, you know, uh, could I have a lunch with you? Could I have a coffee with you? Could I have a phone call with you? And people are pretty friendly. Uh, yeah. It's actually not that difficult to, to get uh, an hour, half an hour of someone's time. Yeah. Uh, so, so I would just uh, talk to them and listen and try to learn how they think about the world and what are uh, the issues and the challenges that, that they run into as they create the standards that power the internet, that uh, uh, that uh, power our devices. Uh, so, so for me, it's kind of just a reflex. Uh, whenever mm. I work on something or even interested in something, I, uh, I start uh, uh, talking to practitioners and I try to understand their point of view. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and that's actually how I ended up in tech. So I, uh, you know, I'm a market designer. I'm right. Uh, um, uh, some interest in mechanism design. So so when I learn about uh, sponsored search auctions, I thought, oh, that's an interesting auction. Uh, it's it's not clear what kind of equilibrium it has. Mm. So I. Um, together with um, uh, Michael Ostrovsky and Ben Edelman, who are uh, both former Harvard students, um, uh, I worked out a model of the equilibrium in the in the auction, uh, uh, and uh, and uh, kind of my first reflex was, well, I, I want to meet people who are in that business. Who was designing these auctions before the economists were involved? Oh, that uh, that's an interesting story. Uh, so, uh, so that's a story I uh, uh, heard from uh, uh, Halvarian. Mm. Uh, so, I I'm actually I'm blinking on the name of a person who came up uh, uh, with the uh, concept of generalized second price auction. Uh, he was a uh, engineer, uh, I think his specialty was vision, um, and he was, um, I think he was a Caltech undergrad, and he took like a one course in economics, so he knew what a second price auction was, uh, but kind of vague recollection from an undergraduate class. Uh, 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 so what's interesting, uh, and again, it's a hearsay, I, yeah. I, I uh, didn't know that uh, person and I, I just heard stories. Yeah. So it's interesting that he kind of uh, used this logic of second price auction to, to create generous second price auction to sell advertisement. Yeah. And uh, what's fascinating is that uh, it seems that he actually understood, like my first conjecture was a generous second price auction was basically an erroneous implementation of VCG, right? And that person didn't know what VCG was because he, he just took one undergraduate course in Caltech that probably had half a lecture on uh, second price auction. Mm -hmm. I, I don't believe that person knew VCG, although who knows. Mm -hmm. uh, but what's interesting is that 
Ketch understood that uh, January 2nd price auction was not incentive compatible uh, because apparently Halvarian told me that he dug out some memo written by that person uh, where he says, well, we can use this auction. It's very, very simple. Uh, it's intuitive. And yes, people may not be bidding that, that true value. And then he presumably in that note, that I never read. Presumably, he says that he thinks he understands how to work out the payments that would kind of make people be the true value, but it's probably not worth the effort or something. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. How many, how many pre-econ auction things are being, you know, developed across tech in the at the beginning before people like you and Varian and others were coming out there is this I mean it was just like was everybody kind of like you know doing what this this gentleman was doing sort of we need an auction somebody creates an auction and we later learn it sort of has these unique properties uh well I think that the, the only uh auctions uh that I am aware of uh are like the, the only uh i mean obviously there, there's a uh, auctions have been used since uh um you know since more than 2000 years so yeah. obviously the very long history of auctions yeah um uh, but i i believe in tech the first application of auctions that I'm aware of, and maybe I'm just forgetting something completely obvious, but I think the first application of auctions that I am aware of was by Overture, that was later acquired by Yahoo, mm. where they use what I call uh, um, generalized first price auction, mm. uh, where uh, you kind of rank people according to bids, and then you pay per click, but you pay what you bid. Mm. Mm. And uh, that you can see that there's no pure strategic equilibrium in that model. Mm -hmm. So bids are unstable. And you see as an empirical matter, things are kind of going crazy uh, because it's to your benefit to change your bid in response yeah. to whatever your competitors are doing. And yeah. there's no pure strategic equilibrium. So it's an infinite dance. Uh -huh. It's inefficient. Uh, it's both inefficient in terms of misallocating advertising space. Mm -hmm. But it's also inefficient in terms of people's time. It's just, it's not friendly, mm. uh, right? I mean, you don't want to be uh, penalized in terms of worse performance just because you don't bother to write some kind of script that would uh, constantly um, change your, your bid. Yeah. Uh, so that was kind of the mm, original uh application of auctions at least for sponsored search advertisement uh so then later google improves upon it where they decide to also start selling sponsored search advertisement via auction and they say oh we see that there's this problem those things are not stable uh so instead of charging the bid they charge uh the uh, uh bid of a uh of an advertiser who is right below you. Yeah. So this this early, you know, so now I'm just, I have, 
I, I have so many. I feel like I want to talk to you forever, but um, I I want to now. I guess talk to you about this this just like thing that just as you were talking, I just now am sort of piecing together things that I don't didn't see as connected. I don't fully see as connected yet. But this thing on your Wikipedia page says. In 2006, Businessweek reported that Schwartz and two of his students had cracked Google's AdWords code. And I was curious, what what is that talking about? Oh, <laughs> uh, so that's a funny story. Uh, so, mm, uh, so when I, um, uh, when we wrote this paper that characterized the equilibrium of uh, January second price auction, uh, uh, we, um, uh, you know, we started circulating the paper, we presented it at the AR meetings, uh, and, uh, uh, of course we didn't know if, that if Google knew those results, so we, you know, we send that paper to Halvarian and say, hey, yeah. Hal, what do you think? And uh, uh, at that, and Hal told us, "Oh, I know all of this." <laughs> and we said, "Wow, you do." Uh, that's um, I don't know what to say, but um, okay, we, we believe you. Would you like to to maybe join us on this paper? Right. Uh, like actually, no, I. Um, Mm, he said that he didn't publish those results because he wasn't allowed to publish it because it's a trade secret that Google used. <laughs> uh, and um, he said, okay. Uh, and then after our paper uh, uh, was kind of publicly posted uh, as an NBR working paper or publicly posted online, I'm not sure. At that point, Hal got permission from Google to publish his paper uh, because it was a... Uh, uh, virtually identical to ours. It had uh, so we had mm, uh, we had some extra results that uh, Hal's paper doesn't have, uh, but kind of the the, the basic equilibrium result, uh, mm. not, the unique, not the uniqueness result, but the basic equilibrium result mm. uh, is exactly identical, mm. which to me proves that it's a real science, right? Like <laughs> when two people independently discover exactly identical things, just exactly. Right. Right. That's when you know it's science. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so that's the story. And then uh, uh, I guess as journalists interviewed, uh, I don't know whom they must have learned that story. It's like, oh, oh, oh. So that was Google's trade secret. So okay, we cracked the Google code. It's uh, <laughs> great. Okay. <laughs> we did. <laughs> Uh, it's a very useful result. I mean, the reason that Google kept it as a trade secret, I think, is a very useful result. When you change anything in the auction, it allows you to run all kinds of counterfactuals. Mm -hmm. uh, and obviously, that's a much, much cheaper way to optimize your system, to analytically figure out counterfactuals, rather than deploy a change, wait for three months, see what happened with the revenues, and hope you figured out if that change is good or not. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's very useful. You know, it's it, there's this book by uh, I think his name's Robert Heilbronner called "The Worldly Philosophers," and it's funny us talking right now. I, it's like, you know, the to listen to you talk, it it it's you know, it's like talking to a a timeless kind of. I mean, I mean, I don't mean this to flatter you. I just mean like it's like talking to one of these 
timeless, you know, classic economist. And it's so interesting that at the same time, it, the the things that you're sitting here thinking so deeply about have been so valued by Google and Yahoo and Microsoft. And I just, it's it's interesting that that's not something that usually I usually thought of with like philosophers, but it's interesting to think about the, the worldly philosophers. It's so valuable what you're doing for these giant parts of society. And I just was curious, what exactly has it, what exactly has been the, the if you could sort of break down in this hedonic regression of the elements of your, you know, your skill set that has been really valued by Google and Yahoo and Microsoft repeatedly over and over and time again, what what exactly has been the, the those core value added that's like part of you and maybe even part of PhD economists in general? Well, uh, you know, I think that, um, so right now in many ways we live in uh, uh, times that many economists would decline would describe as kind of diminishing importance uh, of theory and I, I i don't think i subscribe to that uh notion at least not fully mm -hmm. uh, uh but i think that theory economic theory is actually enormously useful i, I i'm a big believer in usefulness of economic theory and uh, i i mean i uh, i know it's useful because that's how i make my living by playing right. uh uh, it to practice. So obviously, you know, my my team has uh, uh, many uh, applied economists, uh, econometricians, data scientists. That's very very important. But theory is becoming more important in the time of cheap compute. Mm. Uh, and the reason is that uh, models, like you could not. Um, no matter how much data you have, there's always, um, you always need some sort of structure to think about the world. And theory is something that offers that structure. So of course you, you, you want to use the data, uh, you want to be, um, uh, you know, you don't want, you don't just want to philosophize and theorize, yeah. but also you want to guide your usage of data yeah. uh, by theory. And by the way, that that's what uh, applied economists do. Mm -hmm. That's the difference between applied economists and a data scientist who kind of looks at um, mm -hmm. uh, the data without trying to come up with a conceptual framework. And that conceptual right. framework is very valuable. And that's what theory has to offer. Yeah. So I think that the problem uh, uh, with theory, uh, to some extent, is that uh, there are a lot of theorists who kind of forgot that theory is out there to provide a useful framework yeah. uh, for applications, not necessarily yeah. immediately. Right. Uh, I'm a big fan of theory that uh, you know may not be useful for the next 10, may not be practically useful for the next 10 years. Mm. But I think we all have to be thinking, how is that framework going to be actually helpful in mm. practice? Mm -hmm. And I, I think that kind of two types of economic theorists, economic theorists who come like, uh, I'll give you one um, 
example without naming names. Um, so, uh, you know, one very smart economic theorist asked me, it's like, hey, uh, I have this really clever model. You're really good in kind of getting uh, really good um, application examples. Could you help me out here to like come up with an illustration of that model? And like, uh, actually, that's not how it works. <laughs> uh, it's it's first you look at the fault, and and then you try to kind of um, find a model that would be useful. Uh, so so I think some of the theory that we see may be very clever and kind of intellectually fascinating, uh, but then kind of the uh, the applications are an afterthought. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, that's not the kind of applied theory that uh, would be useful. I think that it really has to come from observing reality and finding something that's um, finding a framework of thinking about it that's useful. Yeah, yeah. What has what has been uh, so when you're doing that work? I, how when when you're doing that kind of work? Um, and you're you're working for Google or Microsoft or Yahoo. What is it that makes them say, you know, we see in what Michael is doing, and it's it's producing value for us enough that we want him or people like him. What what has it been? At you know, what was it like at the beginning of your career, and maybe what is it like now in like industry in general? Uh, could, could you a little bit elaborate on, uh, on the question? Well, so you're, you know, in some ways what you've described about the the production of theory, it, it's like its value, it, it almost feels like pure science, even though it's about, you know, it's, a, it's about theoretical models that help you understand the world. I could imagine what you said in your response, you would have, you would have said had you stayed at Harvard, but you were sucked into industry and so i'm wondering you know what was it that what, what what is it that other people think you bring to the firm what what is it that they see well i i think that uh uh, uh i mean is it the same as what our our departments are looking for most Sorry. of the things are extremely specific Right, so let, let me uh, just start with my um, uh, uh, with my work at Yahoo. Uh, so I, I uh, joined Yahoo about more than fifteen years ago, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, at that time, you know, most of Yahoo revenues were coming from sponsor from advertisement, both mm -hmm. display and sponsor search. So most of my work at Yahoo was in um, uh, ad monetization, uh, both for display ads and for sponsored search. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it, it had a very well documented, very tangible impact on the corporate uh, bottom line. For example, uh, we uh, used um, optimal auction design theory mm -hmm. to estimate optimal reserve prices for 
uh, enormous number of uh, keywords and keyword combinations. I mean, we are talking about like millions, right? Yeah. Uh, so it has to be done algorithmically. You couldn't, you couldn't have a smoky room where people decide what a reasonable <laughs> reserve price would be, right? right? It's algorithmic. Um, yeah. so, so we did that uh, and, and we launched that and uh, it, uh, it made enormous amount of money for the company so much so that in the earning call, uh, then president of Yahoo said, well, this, this moved our quarterly earnings. Wow. <laughs> Uh, so, so that was one of the kind of uh, high impact projects, and that wasn't the only one. Um, uh, you know, we uh, I uh, designed some of the algorithms for uh, pricing display advertisement and so on and so forth. Mm. Um, so that, that's just very tangible value. You, right. you you have to have algorithms yeah. that run. Uh, your pricing decisions, uh, many other decisions, mm. uh, and uh, that's uh, that creates tangible, measurable value. You, could, yeah. you, you know, you have a treatment group, you have a control group. You, you, right. uh, uh, some of the time you can measure quite precisely what the impact yeah. was. Some yeah. of the time it's much harder to say what the impact was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that uh, that when you think about the 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 labor market now for PhD economists, it it seems like it's much more common now for a new graduate to you know you Amazon Microsoft everybody posts on Joe, and so there you know there there's much more of a they're a big part of the demand for the the new minted PhD economists. What what do you what do you what does it seem like? Uh, the kinds of value that economists bring that you know that is sort of making them what what is it that firms in industry now are really looking for uh, to to be what are they what are they trying to identify in a that makes an, a PhD economist really attractive hire? Well, I think that. Um right now we live in uh, uh in many ways we live in the age of data mm -hmm. and um uh, knowing statistics is not enough to um, get business insight from mm -hmm. the data that translates into value i mean sometimes it's enough obviously there are plenty of successful statisticians uh, uh, and data scientists out there, but it is very valuable to think about what are the important business questions that we can answer with this data? Mm. What are the product changes and features that we can build using this data using insights derived from that data mm. and that's i think uh where economic training becomes very valuable where it kind of meets data science so i think there's a huge complementarity yeah. between the two. yeah 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 and yeah. i think that's, that's where the value is uh, and in my opinion uh economists have the most value for things that are new so, for example, right now, I personally don't do any work on sponsored search advertisement. 
And the reason is that it's kind of a mature industry, rel relatively mature, right? Mm. So, so that low-hanging fruit that I could easily harvest 15 years ago is no longer there. Yeah. So uh, I think that uh, when you look at something new, as an economist, I can come in and say, look, because I understand the theory, I can think about it better and deeper than any, than any practitioner, because there are no practitioners who have a lot of experience with that thing, because it's new. Yeah. So fast forward 10 years, you have a bunch of practitioners who have deep intuition, uh, who have enormous institutional knowledge, who have great rules of thumb. And then you come in as an economist and say, oh, I, I can model it. I can think about it. And practitioners who are in it for 10 years, they go, well, uh, maybe they don't have like the same conceptual framework, but they figure everything out one way or the other. Mm. Uh, and uh, the marginal value that an economist could create there is much, much lower. On the other hand, you come in somewhere where there are no practitioners because it's new and you are bringing conceptual framework. You can think about it before it happened, before there's a long history from which to learn. And yeah. that's where the value is. Mm. Uh, so, mm. so to some extent, I think that the position of an economist in tech is paradoxical. Mm. Uh, let's think about it this way, uh, especially an economic theorist. Uh, if economic theory is right, then it is impossible for me to make a living in tech. Mm -hmm. Impossible. It's theoretically, theoretical impossibility. Because if economic theory is right, every economic agent, uh, uh, agent uh, perfectly solves every model that they could write and does absolutely optimal thing. Well, if every economic agent does an optimal thing, how in the world am I supposed to make a living telling economic agents what to do? Yeah. They know what to do. They solved all the models, yep. including the models I couldn't solve. So, yep. right. so if economic theory is right, mm -hmm. economic theory is useless, completely yep. useless. Yep. Well, if economic theory is completely wrong, well, then it ain't use useful either. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, <laughs> fortunately for me, economic theory is not completely right. Of course, nobody could perfectly solve all the models. But it's not completely wrong either. Mm. Uh, it's just uh, roughly right. Uh, so that by applying those models, we can say something that is directionally right and useful. Uh, and it's particularly useful before there are people with experience who kind of really figured out yeah. how to solve those problems by trial and error and so on and so forth. But yeah. early on, when practitioners haven't quite figured out the solutions, mm -hmm. and we can sort of approximately figure things out, that's where economic theory is most useful. And mm -hmm. that is why kind of my entire career, both myself and my team, try to chase the wave of innovation, try to go to things that are new and novel, uh, and where there is not yet a set of practitioners who kind of have the wealth of intuitions that we don't have. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's why when I was in Google, I was in charge of uh, developing a carpooling pl platform with matching and pricing algorithms for that, that, that platform. 
uh, was heavily hurt by the pandemic. It still exists as a ways carpool. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's why at Microsoft, uh, me and my team work on things like Azure. We work uh, with Game Pass uh, when it was kind of a new, uh, o- uh, new uh, Microsoft offering. We work mm-hmm. with uh, uh, pretty much anything that is new and novel, right? Like yeah. how do you price Copilot? How, how do you estimate the impact of uh, Copilot on developer productivity? Like all those questions, something that's new, something that's novel, where that's where economic theory and economists are most useful. Yeah. Something where you have practitioners who are doing something for 15 years, uh, they figured it out better than they we can. figured it out. Hmm. Well, I know that uh, you have to run. I, I have, this has been really uh, such a, a neat opportunity to get to talk to you and, and listen to your thoughts on all these things. Um, I just want to th- thank you so much for letting me uh, interview you for uh, the podcast and to learn more uh, about you. Thank you, Scott. It, uh, it was a pleasure. I really enjoyed our uh, conversation. Okay. Bye-bye.